Making sure a business thrives is challenging, but sometimes the solution can lie right in the numbers. Uh, specifically, 37,000, 25, and 1. Now, these aren't just figures. They're a gateway to more visibility and decisive control in your business. Let's start with 37,000. That's the amount of businesses who've embraced NetSuite by Oracle, the ultimate cloud financial system revolutionizing accounting, financial management, HR, and beyond. And 25? That's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do everything from accelerating financial closures to slashing operational costs. And every business is unique, making yours the one that matters. NetSuite offers tailored solutions to amplify your key performance indicators, all consolidated within one streamlined platform. Ready to optimize? Download NetSuite's coveted KPI checklist, engineered to elevate your performance consistently, absolutely free. Visit netsuite.com slash cbs now. That's netsuite.com slash cbs. Good morning. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday Morning. Good to be back with you. With seven months to go, campaign 2016 is really only just getting started. Yet we already have seen personality clashes aplenty, not just among the candidates, but also between the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump, and a noted television journalist, Megyn Kelly. She'll be talking with Charlie Rose for our Sunday Morning Cover Story. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Megyn Kelly of Fox News didn't pull any punches when she confronted Donald Trump at the first Republican debate. Nor is Trump exactly holding back about her. I don't like her. Uh, she doesn't treat me fairly. So, after all the harsh words, would Kelly ever welcome Trump onto her show? Absolutely. And it does not require an apology from him. Oh, God, no. Later on Sunday morning, Megyn Kelly on life, the news, and Donald Trump. We then move on to the far more nurturing relationship so many grandparents are now having with their grandkids. Isn't it, Grant? Leslie Stahl certainly thinks so. I'm his grandfather. <laughs> And I'm his grandson. A growing number of boomers, over a million are becoming grandparents every year now, are tightening the bonds of their extended families. You've basically had your grandmother being somewhat of a granny nanny, as I call it. What's that been like for you? Uh, well, it's been very, I mean, it's critical to everything we do. Later on Sunday morning, grandparent <laughs> nannies. From actively involved grandparents to a very talkative mother and son. With Rita Braver, we'll drop in on Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. What happens when one of the world's most famous moms and her globe-trotting son decide to let it all hang out? You tell her that She's surrounded by chaos, and you say, that's great, I love chaos. Well, I've, this has been my nature. I mean, I can handle chaos. Yeah, it exhausts me. It drives me bananas. 
So do you come visiting here often? Uh, oh, yeah. Later on Sunday morning, Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper. Nothing left unsaid. And introducing Chris Stapleton, a country music lyricist who's finally found his place in the spotlight. Mark Strassman will have his story. Chris Stapleton is a gifted singer and songwriter. Just don't call him a star. I don't think I ever moved to Nashville to be a star. I, in fact, that word kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Even now? Even now, yeah. But with a platinum album to his name and an armful of awards, this year's breakout country star is what he is. Chris Stapleton, ahead on Sunday morning. Connor Knighton is on the trail to Big Bend National Park. Faith Saley surveys the work of a nun who became a noted artist, Corita Kent. Steve Hartman introduces us to a couple on a mission and more. Ahead. I think it's very clear to him that he cannot control the editorial on my show or from me. Right Megan Kelly. I'm Donald Trump. These are the people you depend on for all the latest. Studio down there. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Megan Kelly is a Fox News anchor who finds herself very much in the news these days. And it all began with a single exchange in a presidential debate. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported now by Charlie Rose of CBS This Morning. Mr. Trump. It may be one of the most unforgettable moments of this campaign. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. At the very first Republican debate back in August, Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly posed this question to Donald Trump. Does that sound to you like the temperament of a man we should elect as president? And how will you it was a question that changed her life. What I say is what I say. And honestly, Megan, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I've been very nice to you, although I could probably maybe not be based on the way you have treated me, but I wouldn't do that. When he answered the way he did, tell me what was going through your mind. I perceived it as a veiled threat. A veiled threat. Because he said he might not be nice to me after this debate. I'm not a fan of Megyn Kelly. I think she's a third-rate reporter. And for the past eight months, Donald Trump has not been nice to Megyn Kelly. I don't like her. Uh, she doesn't treat me fairly. Over and over again. You know, you could see there was blood coming out of her eyes, uh, blood coming out of her wherever. On Twitter, he's called her sick, overrated, and crazy. Megyn Kelly has never directly responded to Trump's attacks, but she stands by her question on his attitude about women. What I was trying to get at was the weaknesses of each of these candidates if they were to become the general election candidate. Charlie, this was coming, whether I showcased it in the debate or not. But you've become part of the story, too. That's been unfortunate. That was never my goal. That's never a news person's goal. But you've got to like being on the cover of Vanity Fair. Yes, I mean, listen, I would be lying if I said it wasn't cool to see myself on the cover of Vanity Fair, right? It's like, what am I doing there? This is bizarre. 
Breaking tonight, two big things happened today on the campaign trail. Even before Trump made her a household name, her show, The Kelly File, on Fox News Channel, was one of the most watched programs in cable news. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Second only to Fox's The O'Reilly Factor. To the side, so Mr. Trump said the, the Secret Service said anything, this Megan. didn't happen. That, and tr no, let me finish. A, let me finish. Who's your audience? The viewer I picture in my mind when I do The Kelly File is a woman who's had a long day, either with the kids or at work or both. She sits down, she gets her glass of Chardonnay, she wants to consume the news effortlessly, enjoy it, and not have to work too hard for it. Her two million plus viewers tune in to see a self-described independent with a reputation for asking tough questions to anyone, Democrat and Republican alike. What do you say to those who say you were so wrong about so much? So is there great relish on your part when you take somebody down? I don't want to take anybody down, but if you come on the show and lie or obfuscate or spin in a way that's dishonest, there I am to stop you. Megyn Kelly grew up Catholic and middle class near Albany, New York. I never really had huge aspirations. I remember my mother used to say to me, you know, they don't give scholarships for cheerleading, Megan. <laughs> Life took on a new urgency at 15 when her father died unexpectedly. Devastating and sudden and just like a nuclear bomb going off in the family. You know, my, my memory is I went up to my bedroom and went to sleep and the next thing I knew my sister was waking me up saying, wake up, daddy had a heart attack. After high school, she set her sights on journalism at Syracuse University's Newhouse School, but was rejected. So, Megyn Kelly went on to study at Albany Law School, and by her early 30s, Kelly was a litigator at one of the nation's top firms. I was working like a dog. I mean, I really worked 16-hour days, 18-hour days, all the time. And it wasn't that the firm made me do that, it was that I was making myself do it. Because? It, because I was competitive, I wanted to win. I never felt that I had the natural intellectual gifts that the people who graduate first in their class from Harvard Law had. But Kelly never forgot her first love. While still working at Jones Day, she wrangled a part-time job as a local reporter in Washington, D.C. If more than 825 students want in to this year's prom, the school says they're going to be out of luck. Before long, she found herself having to make a choice. My local station had made me a full-time offer, and I thought, wow, if I'm good enough to be full-time here, maybe I'm good enough to be full-time someplace better than here. Fox News correspondent Megan Better Than Here was Fox News Channel. Brit New York Times reporter Judith Miller says she'd rather do jail time. She joined in 2004. We were told no DNA. Not true. The Her legal skills, along with a willingness to take on some of America's big-name conservatives, because you're on the side no, of the Christians in no. this case, quickly made Kelly a rising star. No, the government. The government doesn't decide what's appropriate speech. That is not the way this okay, country works. That, Kelly doesn't hold back, and she's equally aggressive in her defense of Fox News. And I did and do believe that there is a left-leaning bias in news, in most of news. And I don't do you believe think there's a right-wing bias at Fox? No, I don't. A conservative bias at no, Fox? No, I don't. I think that Fox News is fair and balanced, and I think the conservatives who are on air here make no bones about no. their ideology. But does Fox News have a closer relationship with Donald Trump, with the Republican Party, than it does with liberals and the Democratic Party. Well, uh, I think that's 
That's obviously true because, yeah. you know, you, you see Trump on our air every day. Part, Kelly admits that Trump's attacks have boosted her profile, and no one agrees more than Donald Trump. I might be the best thing that ever happened to her. I don't know, because no, whoever even heard of her before the last debate. But I one of our very... babysitters is from Peru, and she came home one day and told us that she saw my name in the Peruvian papers. I don't think that ever happened before this particular dust-up, so I'm going to have to give him that point. But there are fears that have arisen from all the attention. It's not so much what he writes or says, it's how he gins up anger among so many. So it manifests in my life in several ways. Have Some there threats. been threats against your life? Does that concern you? It's not that I'm worried someone's actually going to come shoot me down, but I do worry someone's going to try to hurt me in the presence of my children. How have you been affected by this Trump stuff? It is frustrating. Still, the 45-year-old Kelly and husband Arthur Doug Brunt, parents of three children under seven, seem to take it all in stride. I think one of the things that's been most frustrating for Donald is that he has not been able to get a rise out of her, even though he repeatedly tries to do so. For me, he gets a rise out of me, for, for sure. Some think about this and they look at it and they say, why her? I think it's very clear to him that he cannot control the editorial on my show or from me in a debate or other Just setting. Just that. That's all it is. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speculate beyond that. If on Monday Donald Trump says, I want to come on your show, would you say, you're welcome, come on, we have a spot for you? Absolutely. And it does not require an apology from him? Oh, God, no. Nothing. Just no. show up and let's talk. He does not have well, to apologize. We'd have to, to discuss something about sure. the dynamic. That's and what would you say to him about it? Why? That's what I really want to know. Why? With him this Especially when Trump appears often on other Fox News programs. In January, on Bill O'Reilly's show, he was at it again. I have zero respect for Megyn Kelly. I don't think she's very good at what she does. I think she's highly overrated. Did you expect Bill to defend you? I mean, I wish he had defended me more in that interview. I, I would have defended him more, but... There was silence. I think Bill did the best he's capable of doing in those well, circumstances. this damning with faint praise, the best he's capable of doing. Listen, as, as Bill is fond of saying, um, I would have handled it differently. And I think you should forgive not only journalists who come at you in ways you don't like. But I think you should what be can I say? It was, it was a dark moment. Fox News has repeatedly defended Kelly, saying in a statement just last month that Trump has, quote, an extreme sick obsession with her. Obsessed? What did they mean? Well, I think they're referring to the nonstop nature of it. But Fox also recognizes that Kelly is a major talent. It is giving her a bigger platform next month, a primetime special on the Fox Broadcasting Network. Still, while this may be her moment, Megyn Kelly isn't taking anything for granted. Do you really worry that this could all end? Yeah, of course. I like to go big. I am not a worrier. I am a catastrophizer. I don't waste time with the small stuff. I like to go, you know, like one, one bit of turbulence on the plane. This is it. When you think about your future, what do you want? To keep growing. I mean, I'm not saying I want to leave Fox News. I'm saying I want to add 
to what I'm doing. But I have to figure it out, Charlie, because I don't want to take away more time from my family. Certain people have found the perfect show for themselves. What's the perfect television show for Megyn Kelly to do? How about if we merge a little Charlie Rose, a little Oprah, and a little <laughs> me all together, and we serve that up as an hour? Wouldn't you watch that? I'd love it. I'd love it. <laughs> the bomb on the Yale campus today blew up in the computer sciences building. Up next, remember the Unabomber? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. April 3rd, 1996, 20 years ago today. The day the FBI arrested Theodore Kaczynski, the suspected Unabomber, at his cabin in rural Montana. Beginning in 1978, a mysterious series of bombings across the country had killed three people and wounded 23 others. The bomb on the Yale campus today blew up in the computer sciences building. The targets were mostly either universities or airlines. Small bomb exploded in a mail pouch in the cargo hold. Which explains the origin of his nickname, the Unabomber. For years, the only clue to his identity was this single sketch of a shadowy hooded figure. It was all there today, all 35,000 words of the Unabomber's message to America. The big break came in 1995, when the Washington Post printed a long anti-technology manifesto from the Unabomber entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. Its ramblings reminded an upstate New York man named David Kaczynski of the kinds of things his older brother, Theodore, had written in the past. Once a brilliant math student at Harvard, Theodore Kaczynski had long since abandoned academia to live as a recluse in that remote Montana cabin. David Kaczynski's suspicions forced him to wrestle with a moral dilemma, as he told our Aaron Moriarty back in 2005. Because of the death penalty, the likelihood would be that I'd, I'd either have some innocent person's blood on my hands if I did nothing, or my own brother's blood on my hands if I stepped forward. David Kaczynski did step forward. He provided information that led to his brother's arrest and conviction. And with top legal aid, David was able to help his brother to escape the death penalty. I would like to say that our reaction to, to today's plea agreement is one of deep relief. Instead, Theodore Kaczynski is currently serving four life sentences without parole at the so-called Supermax prison in Colorado. On May 22nd, he will be 74 years old. Ahead? We have a math test tomorrow. Ooh. Grandparents are parenting. Isn't it grand? Grandparents are, for any number of reasons, spending more time than ever with their grandkids. You can count Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes among them. And now we go side to side. At this dance class for preschoolers at a YMCA in Queens, New York, grandparents don't just drop off. They stay to groove with their grandchildren. Oh, awesome. Good job. And afterwards, there's still more to do. It's like I am the mother to her. These grandparents, like so many, are helping to raise their grandchildren, partly because child care is so expensive. It can cost more than college. 
with this economy, both mothers and fathers have to work. And my wife and I chip in as much as we possibly can. We have our math test tomorrow. Ooh. Take these grandparents and their grandchildren at elementary school PS 144, also in Queens. I'm his grandfather. <laughs> and I'm his grandson. He takes me to school right every day, like after school. He feeds me after school sometimes. I always try to find time to spend time with them. If my daughter calls me or my son-in-law, I will always stay with my kids and I just uh, cancel my appointment, whatever. How many Grandparents are the help that isn't hired or paid and really wants to be there. When my mom's at work, she watches me and she cooks for me. A growing number of boomers, over a million are becoming grandparents every year now, are tightening the bonds of their extended families. Case in point, the president's mother-in-law, Marion Robinson, who lives in the White House as a granny nanny to Sasha and Malia. Michelle Obama says her mother was really strict raising her, but she's so indulgent as a grandmother, she's hard to recognize. Oh, look who's here, look who's here. Hello. Daddy! <laughs> I can relate to that. I'm Lolly to my daughter Taylor and son-in-law Andrew's five-year-old Jordan and two-year-old Chloe. <laughs> Even though they live across the country, I'm in their lives. Lolly, you can look. Okay, I can see your face. Look at you. Look at you. Thank God for technology. My boyfriend. You have a boyfriend and you're only five? Wait, what? What? Do we like him? No, I love him. <laughs> I'm exhilarated being a granny. And in my book, Becoming Grandma, I talk to experts and other grandmothers about the science and joys of grandparenting. One expert, the head of Children's Charter Key Trauma Clinic in Boston, is also my sister-in-law, Paula Stahl, who often treats grandparents who have full custody of their grandchildren. To me, the definition of being a grandmother or grandfather is to have a whole new kind of love that you don't know is even in you. It's just love, that's it, period. It's unconditional love, loving them for who they are, not who we want them to be. Not loving them for what jobs they're going to have, not loving them for what schools they're going to do, but just the mere joy of being in the same space with them. One of the things I heard over and over from grandmothers is, guess what? They love me the same way. Think about what kind of demands a grandparent puts on. One of the demands we make as grandparents. Very few. Zero. Zero. Play with me. <laughs> Let, Let me, me read, read to you. <laughs> it's a whole different way of looking at parenting. 16-year-old Spencer Emerson and his twin Rosie are both medal-winning skaters. Their grandmother takes care of them several days a week. You've basically had your grandmother in your life being somewhat of a granny nanny, as I call it. What's that been like for you? Uh, well, it's been very, I mean, it's critical to everything we do. So she's really been like a second mom? Yeah, basically. I mean, she, you know, she feeds me, she drives me different places. I stay at her apartment to do homework. I mean, really need her. Do you call her grandma? I call her Tish. She really doesn't like being called grandma. <laughs> You've watched it develop it's been really fun. Tish is Tish Emerson. In the 70s and 80s, she was president of Wheaton College, my alma mater. She worked full-time when Spencer's mother, Becky, was growing up. 
What was life like as a single working mother? Much more than difficulties at the job, the difficulty was getting good childcare. When the children were small, I had a wonderful housekeeper who came four days a week. So my mother said, I will give you the fifth day. And that's how we got through me being able to work really long days and have a lot of help. And if your mother is helping you, she's the one you trust more than anybody else. Right. So when Becky needed help, Tish couldn't say no. I was already so drawn to them. You're bound to them. It's a yeah. binding. Yeah. I came partly to help Becky because she needed it, but also because it just felt so good to take care of these little babies. Tish discovered she needed them. Was there a sense, because you worked full-time, that you hadn't really been able to do that full-time with your own children, and that this was going to be your chance? Yes, and when you see all these things that they do when they're two and they're three and they're seven that you didn't get to see before, yeah. you know that this is such a wonderful opportunity to get a second, second life, a second chance. True from when they were little. You're already here taking care of them by yeah. this one. Yeah. And it's That's been right. a chance to do things differently. How do you think you've changed since you've become the granny nanny? When you're a working mother parent, time is your enemy. When you're a grandmother, you have a completely different time frame with your grandchildren. And you're able to just be more relaxed and kind of let it flow a little bit more. Is it just the time or the parent really does have the responsibility for making them good citizens and getting them educated and making sure they have table manners. The parents don't have time to do that. Oh, you're doing it. When the children were 8 to 12, we ate dinner together every night. So who's teaching table manners? I mean, it has to be whoever can, but I was the one who could. By all accounts, spending time with grandchildren isn't just good for them, it's good for grandparents, too. Just ask the grandparents and children at PS 144. It doesn't like this. <laughs> yeah, we do. We get yelled at all the time from your mommy for buying you junk food. Right, James? Papa gets yelled at all the time. I like spend time with them. And I cook for them, do with them, play with the soccer. Love them so much. Me and my husband. Beautiful. Just ahead. It's almost hard to remember that one half of the canyon is United States and the other wall belongs to Mexico. On the trail to Big Bend. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Connor Knighton is back at it this morning, celebrating the centennial of the National Park Service at a spot right on our national border. Each day, over 80,000 people cross between El Paso, Texas and Juarez, Mexico. Can I get across? But head close to 350 miles southeast, and the border has a bit of a different feel. Has it changed in the last few years? Fewer than 40 people a day cross between the United States and Boquillas del Carmen, Mexico. The all-time record is just 304, set during spring break, more than the entire population of Boquillas. For decades, tourists have been coming to this tiny Mexican village to shop, eat, and take a burro ride. Boquillas is within shouting distance. Make that singing distance. 
of a national park. The cross-cultural exchange down here has been part of Big Bend's history since before we became a park. This land once was Mexico, so there were Mexicans that lived here. Jeanette Gerardo is a ranger at the park, which takes its name from the Big Bend of the Rio Grande. For 118 miles, the river twists and turns through this remote stretch of far west Texas. It marks the southern border of the park and of the United States. With our scenery, especially the canyons, it's almost hard to remember that one half of the canyon is United States and the other wall belongs to Mexico. So we share these resources. Mention wall and Mexico in the same sentence these days, and you're bound to get some strong opinions. But these walls, 1,500 feet high, were built by nature millions of years ago. In 1935, Texas Senator Morris Shepard wrote to President Roosevelt, encouraging him to make this region a peace park managed by both countries. As the legislation for the park was being written, part of the discussions were about having this binational or friendly nations park, but it's just never come to fruition to have that formal agreement. But informally, the park has always had ties to the Mexican side. The dividing line is shallow enough you can walk across it. I didn't know that the Rio Grande would be like this wide. Yeah, kind of pequeño. Yeah, it was... <laughs> Not so grande. Yeah, that was This like... was the Smith family's first trip to Mexico. You hear that a lot in Boquillas. We've had a lot of people that have come to Mexico for the first time. And what they really like is that we have a very safe town here. Lilia Falcone was born in Boquillas. Today, she works at the restaurant her parents started back in the 1970s, one of just two restaurants in town. We don't serve like steaks and all that because we still have to go 160 miles away to go get our groceries. The traditional food they do serve is delicious, but for over a decade, there were no tourists to feed. Did September 11th affect how many people were coming here? Well, yes, uh, it completely changed our lives because uh, in 2002, uh, we got the border closed here for 11 years. Up until 2002, Boquillas was considered an informal crossing point. Enforcement wasn't really a priority. But increased security after 9-11 meant that remote crossings like Boquillas were all shut down. Because a lot of the economy down there was tourism-based, most of those families had to move away because there wasn't a way for them to legally support themselves anymore. It was devastating for the town. The bar was the only business that stayed open. But in 2013, the government opened an official port of entry in the park. Next week marks its three-year anniversary. The gates are only open from 9 to 6 p.m., five days a week. The building is staffed with park rangers. To enter back into the U.S., you chat with a Border Patrol agent through a video kiosk. Hello? It's a high-tech experience at the end of a decidedly low-tech day. Back home, just in time to watch the sunset over another country. When you draw those arbitrary political lines, it becomes a little bit more apparent how much the landscape is just one down here. You're going to fly over Times Square? 
Of course not. What do you think I am, some kind of a kook? It happened this past week, the passing of actress Patty Duke. Born Anna Marie Duke in the New York City borough of Queens, she grew up in a troubled home. Under the stage name Patty Duke, she stunned Broadway audiences at the age of 12 as the young, deaf, and blind Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker, a role she reprised in the 1962 film opposite Anne Bancroft as her teacher. Yes. She won an Oscar for that performance. She won notice as well for what may have been the shortest Oscar acceptance speech ever. Thank you. In 1963, she debuted as the star of the Patty Duke Show on television, playing the dual roles of Patty Lane of Brooklyn and of her so-called identical cousin, Kathy Lane of Scotland. Hello, Patty. Did you know there was a movie star at school today? Oh, yeah, Kathy mentioned it. Isn't it nice that Mr. Layton asked Kathy to show him around? But behind the scenes, Patty Duke was battling bipolar disorder, which went undiagnosed until 1982. In the years that followed, she became a leading advocate for mental health. And in a 1988 CBS interview, she had a message for anyone who's suffering through a cycle of emotional highs and lows. Go to a doctor. That's the main thing. Go to the doctor and continue to go until it is determined that you are either manic-depressive or that you have some other problem. A three-time Emmy winner and a past president of the Screen Actors Guild, Patty Duke was living in Idaho with her fourth husband, Michael Pierce, when she succumbed to complications from a ruptured intestine. Patty Duke was 69. No Introducing country music's Chris Stapleton, next. And later. My mom has lived many different lives and has sort of inhabited many different skins. Mother and son. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Never would have hitchhiked to Birmingham if it hadn't been for love. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. The performer is Adele. The song she's singing is the work of Chris Stapleton, a respected country songwriter who suddenly has become a bona fide country star. With the Academy of Country Music Awards tonight here on CBS, we asked our Mark Strassman to make some introductions. In Paintsville, Kentucky, a local boy made good had a homecoming recently good enough to sing about. I'm so happy to meet you. <laughs> All right. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Love to hear you sing. Well, thank you very much. Country singer Chris Stapleton's breakout year has given Paintsville plenty to celebrate. And the CMA Award for Album of the Year goes to... And the Grammy goes to... Chris Stapleton! Traveler, Chris Stapleton! Chris Stapleton! Stapleton, now 37, has won two Grammys, three Country Music Awards, 
and has seven nominations at tonight's Academy of Country Music Awards on CBS. We got a surprise. Traveler, his first solo album, went platinum. This is what we call gradually, then suddenly. Well, give it to me, then. Earlier tonight, we sold a million of these things. Thank you for this. We started here now. But you could say his overnight success was more than a decade in the making. I'm new to a lot of people, and, and that's true. I'm, I'm not new to a lot of people in Nashville. Uh, they're like, man, I've known that guy for years. He's been bugging everybody. The devil would have hitchhiked to Birmingham if it hadn't been for love. Since 2001, Stapleton has been one of Nashville's most consistently successful writers of hit songs, but for other artists. He has had six number ones on the country charts. Artists as varied as Tim McGraw, Cheryl Crow, and Adele have recorded his music. Nobody knows it better than me. I wouldn't be wishing I was free if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for love. Anytime somebody sings one of your songs, it's cool. Very cool. Extremely cool. Like, I think it's the highest compliment. Any idea how many of your songs other people have cut over the years? Probably pushing 200, something like that. I don't know. It's a lot of songs. It's a lot of songs, yeah. So, uh, but I've written a lot of songs too. Like I don't know, I think close to a thousand or more. Stapleton grew up in eastern Kentucky, an area that has produced so many big names in country music. Someone should build a museum, and the locals have. Uh, Loretta Lynn's from the same county that I'm from, so you always hear about the coal miner's daughter and being a coal miner's son. That You can draw some, some correlations there. Both singers attended local high schools. Chris was a valedictorian at his. Uh, what do we get here? It looks like we have a bunch of embarrassing pictures of me. In what might be a cool country boy's worst nightmare or fondest dream. Johnson Central High has Stapleton's teenage years on public display. I'm noticing in all these photos you're neatly groomed. At some point, we made a hair decision. Or a hair uh, laziness kicked in. At some point, I think I lost my razor and, and uh, decided it was cheaper to not get a haircut. Uh, and, and it just kind of went. After high school, he met some local songwriters and had a revelation. I didn't know they would pay you money just sit in a room and write songs for other people. I always thought that George Strait was singing a song, he made it up and that was the end of it, you know. But, but the instant I found that out, that, that that could be a job, I was like, well, that's the job for me. That's, I gotta figure out how to do that. For a country artist, there was only one place for that. You know, I moved to Nashville and, uh, and four days later I had a publishing deal. So, uh, which is not, that is not anybody's story, but that's mine. So it's I a good story to have. It's a good story. I did all of my starving artist things uh, not in Nashville. So. Like? Have you ever had somebody stick a, like a pizza coupon on your windshield in a parking lot? <laughs> I did that. I sold cars. I was a car salesman. If you Were you really? It. Yeah. But the Vance will be ready in there. We're rolling, Chris. All right. I can keep the pain coming out of my eyes. In Nashville, the work was as steady as the hits he wrote. 
but Stapleton was also transitioning from a name in the liner notes on other artists' records to frontman. Yeah, I thought this might be the last record I ever got to make, so, so I was just like, I'm just going to do whatever I want to. I'm just a traveler on this earth, showing my horse behind the pocket of my shirt. Critics hailed Traveler, and it sold respectably. But then he and Justin Timberlake took to the stage at the Country Music Awards. And sales soared. Six months after its release, the album re-entered the Billboard charts at number one in all genres. By his side throughout, his wife of nine years, Morgan. They met at his music publisher's office when he caught her eye. Back in the day when you were smitten with him, waiting for him to notice you. For the record, I am still very smitten. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. But, but did you imagine a day when so many people would also be smitten with him? Yeah, I can't believe it took so long. Um, you always thought this day would come? Yeah, always. She has an unwavering belief in me that I don't even have, so it, it, it really helps. She, she has enough belief for both of us. I just want a hug. All right, you can have a hug here. It's a sentiment shared back in Paintsville. I use you as an example all the time of how a kid from Eastern Kentucky can be successful if they just work at it and it's okay to dream big and to go for it. We get to go all over the world, but this is, uh, this is one of the best places to be right here. So. Stapleton thanked his hometown for all their support by performing two free concerts. Cause there's nothing like your love to give me high and your It's Tennessee whiskey. For a day or two, this traveler's winding road had brought him home to coal country. Soon, he'd be off again. Sounds like a country song. You're as Steve Hartman is next. So why didn't you stop there? You learned this is not a curable disease. End of story. Because that wasn't okay. If anyone can beat some daunting medical odds, it's the couple our Steve Hartman met side by side in Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> Sonia Vallab and Eric Minical were still pretty much newlyweds when they found out they would never grow old together. Five years ago, Doctors told Sonia she carried a genetic mutation for an incurable disease. We think I might have about 20 years. That's our best guess, but there, there are no guarantees there. Dead by 50. That's the medical reality for now. So why didn't you stop there? You learned this is not a curable disease. End of story. Because that wasn't okay. Yeah, I love you. Eric says they realized that if they wanted this cured, they might just have to do it themselves. Never mind that neither one of them knew a thing about medicine. She was a recent law grad, and he worked in transportation technology. But they knew how to use Google, 
So that's where they started. They typed in genetic prion disease, which is what she has, and learned what they could from Wikipedia. Then took night classes in biology, got accepted into a PhD program at Harvard, quit their old jobs, and started working as researchers here at the prestigious Broad Institute in Cambridge, Massachusetts. They are now full card-carrying scientists. Eric Lander is director of the Broad. They really came in with a total plan of all the possible options because failure is not one of those options. How's this going? And so, with happily ever after on the line, husband and wife now stand side by side, day after day, working toward a cure. I think we both really think this is, this is doable. By all accounts, they are well on their way to becoming leading experts in the field. In fact, they're already so well-respected, Sonia was recently invited to speak at a medical conference with the president. Devoting ourselves to developing treatments for these diseases. If Sonia and Eric are successful, they will not only save Sonia's life, but the lives of more than 7,000 other people who die every year from this painful, rapidly progressive form of dementia. It would be a huge medical story. And yet, for the woman at the center, no matter what happens, this will always be a love story. I think it's just the miracle of, of my lifetime that we met. Even if we cure this disease, that will always be the great miracle for me. These will be fascinating to read. All our secrets. <laughs> Still to come, Anderson Cooper and his mom, Gloria Vanderbilt. And later, Sister Mary Corita and Appreciation. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When a mother and son trade confidences, it doesn't necessarily attract the attention of the outside world, unless the mother is Gloria Vanderbilt and her son is Anderson Cooper. They've been sharing their family album with Rita Braver. And here's the first movie of little Gloria herself. Frightened by the curious crowd, she flees into her aunt's car. She was born into one of America's wealthiest families. Gloria Vanderbilt is going on 13 now and quite a sports enthusiast. And from the beginning, the world was fascinated by the trials, travails, and adventures of glamorous Gloria Vanderbilt. Her sensationalized childhood, her careers as an actress, artist, bring out stretch and lots of colors, and jeans designer. It's a shame to call them jeans. Did you always have a sense that the whole world seemed to be watching everything you did? Never, I still don't. I really do never read anything about myself. I do look at the picture, though, because I'm very vain, I guess. And I hope it's a good... Vanity, vanity. <laughs> vanity, all vanity, vanity. All is vanity. I, I just think the, the public perception of her is very different than the person I actually know. And she's 92 now. She's been making headlines from the time she was born. And I kind of wanted to reveal the, the person that I know and the person that she really is. Your campaign said... With her son, 48-year-old CNN anchor and 60 Minutes correspondent Anderson Cooper, realized there were many things that neither of them actually knew about the other. 
So we decided to kind of, on her 91st birthday, to change the conversation that we have and the way we talk to and each we other. And we did it all by e email. I think we're both at a place where, you know, both of us didn't want to leave anything unsaid. Now those emails are being released in a new book. My mom has lived many different lives and has sort of inhabited many different skins. Along with an HBO documentary, Nothing Left Unsaid, which debuts this coming Saturday. Both explore the loving and occasionally bickering relationship between mother and son. Take Gloria's last-minute tendency to invite guests to dinner here at Anderson's Manhattan house. Well, I haven't done it that much. No. Just Once that or twice is probably it, enough. Yes, yes. One of the ways that we're different is that, you know, my mom is incredibly creative, and um, but she's not a, a planner. I plan everything. That's why I have this deep worry line, because I at night I sit there churning when I can't sleep. And I plan one moment to the next. Which drives me bananas. <laughs> These will be fascinating to read. All our secrets. <laughs> it's been a revealing experience for both of them. Some of this was precipitated by the fact that you've been going through your mom's stuff and you had a lot of questions about why she kept certain things and what those things meant. You know, I'd find letters from Howard Hughes to my mom or, or Leopold Stokowski, a famous conductor and who my mom was married to. And, you know, I started asking her about it. And this is what he looked like when you first met him? I knew him for a week and married three weeks later. Really? How old were you? 20. Did any of your friends think it was weird? I don't know. I mean... <laughs> Why did you save all these things? I believe everybody should because it gives you a frame of reference and it gives me a sense of knowing who I was then, who I became, who I am now. It gives one a sense of of time and a sense of one's own history, so to speak. And what a history. Her father, Reginald Vanderbilt, whose family forged a shipping and railroad empire, died in 1925 when Gloria was just a toddler. At 10, she was dubbed the poor little rich girl when her aunt fought her mother for custody and won in part because it was alleged that Gloria's mother had been in a lesbian relationship. I didn't, I never heard the word lesbian. I didn't know what it meant. And I, I became terrified that I would too become like that because it was then considered something that was a sin and a crime and something that was very terrible, you know. Anderson, you, you say that you held off telling your mother that you were gay until you were actually out of college. I mean, I came out in high school to my friends. Part of it in the back of my mind was I had heard that my grandmother had been accused of being a lesbian. And I'd known that as a child it had affected my mom. Um, but I also knew that deep down my mom would be fine with it because she had gay friends who were always in our house growing up. Indeed, it was fine. And in the spirit of nothing left unsaid, the two delve into that most private of personal experiences as in this exchange in the book. Perhaps the only thing more embarrassing than hearing about your sex life was discovering it was more interesting than my own. Well, I do think it's important to have a sense of humor about sex. Sometimes, unable to sleep, I count lovers instead of sheep. And there were plenty, including Frank Sinatra. But it was Wyatt Cooper, 
Vanderbilt's fourth and last husband and father of Anderson and his brother Carter, whom Gloria considers the love of her life. He was a writer, editor, and former actor. They met at a dinner party. I just knew we were going to be very important to each other, you know. This is one of this your paintings. This is a painting I did of uh, uh, me with Wyatt, yes. It's so beautiful. Well, the lighting is so great here. It gets great light. This is such a sweet Yeah, thing. it's a Valentine's card my dad gave to me. And, uh, and then he used to do a lot of doodles of, of our family. But the Cooper family was shattered when Wyatt died of heart disease in 1978 at age 50. For me, it certainly changed who I was. I, I think the person I was before was a lot more sort of interesting and outgoing. I became probably much more introverted um, and very concerned about what catastrophe was going to happen next. And it made me much more of an adult. It's nice to see them side by side. Yes, it is. The most dramatic scenes in the documentary come during a visit to the graves of Wyatt and Carter Cooper, Gloria's son and Anderson's older brother, who died in 1988 by jumping from a balcony while his mother pleaded with him not to do it. I haven't cried since. It's like there's not a tear left. I love to talk about him. It, it brings him alive. It brings him close. It, it helps me to sort of share how I felt about him, feel about him. The yearning, the grief for the lost places. And Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper say they made a deliberate decision to share these surprisingly intimate moments with the whole world. If I'm asking people to tell me their story, I feel like I should tell part of my story. And to the extent that it encourages other people to change the relationship they have, particularly with an aging parent, I, I think then why not? You made no bones in either the documentary or the movie about the fact that you realize this is, you know, coming to the final stages of your life. Yes. Did, what's going But not necessarily. <laughs> Meaning what? What's going through your mind now at this time of your life? Well, I think something wonderful is going to happen. Maybe tomorrow. And um, I like to think maybe sooner. Yeah, my mom is the most sort of youthful and optimistic person I know. She still believes there's like a guy waiting on a boat in the south of France. A yacht. A yacht for her yes. or just around the corner there's going to be some incredible new experience and she makes me believe it as well. The word is love. Next. Corita Kent is a name not that well known outside a small circle of art world admirers. Our Faith Saley is hoping to change that. It may just be the most famous gas tank in the world. That might not sound like much. But the Rainbow Swash, as it's called, off Route 93 in Boston, is also one of the largest copyrighted works of art in the world. Its story goes back to 1971, the height of the Vietnam War, when it was designed as an expression of peace by artist Corita Kent. Kent also happened to be a nun. 
About how many pieces of art do you have in this? So there are about 145 works of art in the exhibition by Carita Kent and by... Katie Luber is the director of the San Antonio Museum of Art, current home to an exhibit looking to place Kent's name firmly alongside her better-known contemporaries. Why isn't Carita Kent a household name? I think it goes back to the problem that pop art has been seen as a male-dominated art form. And she's a woman, and she's a nun. Carita Kent was born Frances Elizabeth Kent in 1918 in Fort Dodge, Iowa. At 18, she entered the Order of Sisters of Immaculate Heart of Mary in Los Angeles. She became Sister Mary Carita. So whenever you can, be tempted to do the things all the same size. For the next 30 years, she would live and work at Immaculate Heart College, eventually heading its art department. During that time, she developed her trademark style, combining the written word with silkscreen designs, an inexpensive medium allowing her to make affordable and accessible art. I think a word and an image next to it in the early meaning of illustration to throw light on the form throws light on the word and the word throws light on the form, which is a thing that, that delights me. She uses many of the kind of strategies that we see in our really famous and well-known male pop artists like Warhol and Liechtenstein and Ed Ruscha. So she simplifies the images. She makes strong outlines. Where she's different from those male artists is that she adds in another textual layer. Kent used the 1960s social and cultural revolutions as the catalyst for her messages about hope and love, drawing inspiration from scripture, pop culture, and contemporary logos. So the big G stands for goodness is, of course, the, the slogan for General Mills. But she does subvert it just ever so slightly by, by not, not finishing. finishing the word. Yes. Yeah. You start to meditate on the idea of what G stands for. Is it goodness? Is it good? Is it God? Is it something else? Kent also used her work to meditate on a changing Catholic church. The mass is spoken in English. The priest turns to face the congregation. Women don't have to wear the head Women covering. Women don't have to wear the head covering. And I think that in the same way that Vatican II loosens up access to religion, Carita wants to loosen up access to art. Her work gained nationwide attention, and in 1967, she graced the cover of Newsweek with the headline, The Nun Going Modern. But perhaps she was too modern. The archdiocese, no. They, they were not fans. They did not like it. Ray Smith is the director of the Corita Art Center, an archive of Kent's work in California. They really wanted the nuns to be cloistered and to do the service that they were supposed to do and to be, you know, good women nuns. Under pressure, Kent eventually left the order. In 1968, she moved east to Cape Cod, focusing on her art. She went on to design the 1985 Love Stamp, perhaps her most recognizable work. A year later, Kent died of cancer at age 67. Whatever legacy she had began to fade. I think it has less to do with the quality or the subject matter and more to do with just the sexism that was part of the art world. Carita Kent's work is peppered with deeper messages, and perhaps her legacy is the same waiting to be uncovered. You know, these ideas about love and peace and hope are really still messages that people 
want to hear, you know, that they crave. And that's really what she was trying to communicate in her work. And I think that's still as relevant right now as it was 40, 50 years ago. Ahead. Play ball. Today is baseball's opening day. And not a moment too soon, in the opinion of Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. This week marks the start of another baseball season, and undoubtedly the continuation of the ongoing beanball season that the Republican presidential campaign has degenerated into. He knows exactly there it is, what the he's memorized 25-second speech. Well, I've the... given my answer, Lion Ted. I've given my answer. All right, let's leave it at that. Over the years, both of these American pastimes, baseball and presidential campaigns, have been governed by quaint but powerful unwritten rules. They both now find themselves under strain. There are written regulations, too, certainly, inscribed in the form of election laws or an actual baseball rulebook. But it's the unwritten rules that reveal the essential character of these institutions, the moral codes and social expectations by which we play our games and choose our leaders. By the unwritten rules of baseball, for instance, a batter who hits a home run must not admire his work too much. Recently, however, a group of brash young stars have questioned these edicts, suggesting they have contributed to baseball's lagging appeal among younger fans. Baseball's tired, the defending National League MVP Bryce Harper says. It's a tired sport because you can't express yourself. He does have a point. But it's also undeniable that part of baseball's allure is in its traditions. Yes, maybe that's a slightly tired view, but what the heck, I'm slightly tired, especially given all the havoc this presidential campaign has inflicted since baseball left us to endure this winter of political discontent. Donald Trump has tossed so many unwritten rules of campaigns out the penthouse window, it's hard to even keep score. The unwritten rule, for instance, that says a candidate's spouse should be placed off limits to ridicule. Or uh, how about the one that says that if a high-level campaign staffer, in Trump's case his campaign manager, is arrested for, say, roughhousing a woman reporter, he should at the very least apologize? I do believe in apologizing if you're wrong. But if you're not wrong, I don't believe in apologizing. It can be ugly, sure, but people love watching the spectacle, like baseball fans transfixed by a bench-clearing brawl. You watch the bedlam, and part of the thrill is the slight wonder you might feel that things might really go off the rails this time, that the game might never revert to its natural calm. But that's the great beauty of baseball. It does revert. You can count on that. There's always another opening day to deliver the game back to us, safely awakened, the opposite of tired, and, these days, the opposite of politics. It can't come soon enough. Play ball. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.